You know, we've been going through a series, we started last week on the cross, and so we've been singing a lot about that today, even in the hymns and even in the anthem here. It's all about the cross, the cross is central, is what we looked at last week, the cross is central to Christianity, and we talked about how that came about and why, and I told you over the next several weeks we're going to be looking at different facets of the cross to try to figure out why is it so central, what, what was God doing through the death of Christ on the cross. And you know, there's several news stations out there, and maybe you watch some of them. Uh, You have CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and ABC and CBS. There's there's several. And uh, one one prominent news anchor, uh, his name is Bill O'Reilly. He's on the Fox News channel. Uh, And besides being a a news reporter, uh, but he also has written several books. And maybe you've seen some of these books, but they're called like the Killing Series. And so he's, read, he's written a book called uh, Killing Patton and Killing Lincoln. And about two years ago, he released a book called Killing Jesus. And it's just a historical look and study at the, the death of Christ. What led to the killing of Jesus? And what's fascinating to me, though, is I mean, that was 2,000 years ago. Did that happen? And yet it was still on the New York Times bestseller list. And it still is today, after two years of being out. It's just people are curious about the death of Jesus. How did it happen? Who killed him? How did the events play out? Why did he die? And this is what we're going to be studying today and throughout uh, March as we, as we move towards Easter. You know, I asked my children that question. I have three kids. And I asked them, kids... Who killed Jesus? And I, and I got three different answers, which probably doesn't surprise you. <laughs> you three different answers, but they were all correct. And so what we're going to see this morning is this question, who killed Jesus, actually has a very layered answer to it. Several layers in that answer. And so I'm going to try to peel back some of those this morning and look at uh, who killed Jesus. The first layer... We see in Matthew 27, and what I'd encourage you to do is, I'm going to go to several passages in the Gospels, and even some in the Epistles and New Testament, and so you may just want to jot some of these down, because um, I'm going to be flying all over the place, and uh, I have them neatly typed in my notes right here, so I can just access them quickly. Now, you may be uh, very nimble with your fingers, and you may be able to follow along with me. If you can do that, great, or if you have it on your phone might be even quicker, or just jot down the address and you'll follow along with me. So, the first layer to the death of Christ, and what I want to do is I want to start with the, the crucifixion, the moment Jesus dies, and I want to back it up, I want to reverse it, and see, okay, what were the layers involved in that? Well, the first layer involved in the killing of Jesus is the Roman soldier. They're the Roman soldiers were involved in the killing of Jesus. The people who actually drove the nails lifted the cross, divided the garments, the Roman soldiers. Matthew 27, 32-35. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him... They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Them, meaning the Roman soldiers, those who are following orders, 
carrying out the crucifixion. Okay? Now, this reminds me of um, Nazi Germany. You know, when you had the, the concentration camps. Uh, now, obviously, you had people that were the masterminds behind that evil. But you also had just the day-to-day people carrying out orders uh, within those camps and in the government of Germany at the time. They didn't come up with the idea of the concentration camp, but they were just kind of following orders, kind of going through the motions, getting the paycheck, going home, paying the bills. But yet they were accomplices in that great evil. And it's the same thing with the Roman soldiers. We know the Roman soldiers did not, they didn't try Jesus. You know, they weren't over the court. They didn't bring down the guilty verdict. They're just following orders. They're just going through the motions, collecting the paycheck, throwing a guy up on the cross. And yet, they're guilty uh, nonetheless. And you know, I think we all have a little bit of Roman soldier in us. We just kind of go through the motions, day to day, going through the, going through the grind, uh, doing our thing without regard for, for God and what He's doing in the world and what He wants us to do. Just kind of plowing through, collecting the paycheck, paying the bills, right? A little bit of Roman soldier in us all. Second layer, if you back it up from the Roman soldiers, who gave the Roman soldiers the charge, the order? Well, it was Pilate. Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of that area. Now, Pilate, what's interesting about him, he's, he's kind of not only in the Scripture identified as the one who gave the order, but even in an early creed, the Nicene Creed, which is a creed that many Christian churches all around the world hold to as an expression of this is what we believe is the church about the person of Jesus. And in part of that creed, this is what we read. Speaking of Jesus. Who, for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and on the third day rose again according to the Scriptures. So even in the creed, we say, hey, Pontius Pilate is the one who laid down the order to crucify Christ. He's responsible. You know, he was part of the guilty party that put him on the cross. And then in John 19, verses 6 through 16, and then later we're going to look at Luke 23 as well. In this passage, I'm just going to summarize it for you. Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus. At least three times. He, he tells the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. This man is innocent. I can't... I send him off to Herod. Herod sends him back to me. I can't find any guilt. And yet people are yelling out, crucify him. And because of Pilate's fear of the crowd, he crucifies Jesus. A man he knows is innocent. Now, why would you do that? We know why Pilate did it. It's because he feared the crowd. In other words, he wanted to preserve himself. He wanted to preserve his position. He wanted to preserve his way of life. And he knew that if he allowed this crowd to get stirred up, he may lose his position because it's already happened before. He didn't have the great reputation of of, dealing with the people well. And so if he were to allow this to get out of hand, he may be removed from his position. And he didn't want that. And so out of fear, he sends Jesus, an innocent man, to the cross. And I think there's a little bit of Pilate in all of us. Right? I mean, you've got a little bit of Pilate. A little bit of Pontius Pilate. 
And that out of fear of people, what they may think of us, fear of losing our position, losing our reputation, losing our comfort, we also go against God and betray Christ. I mean, there's a little bit of Pilate in us all. You keep peeling back the layers. Well, who delivered Jesus to Pilate? Well, it was the religious leaders of the day. Now, not all the Jewish religious leaders uh, were against Jesus, but there were some. And some of them were very prominent. So the third layer is the crowd and the religious leaders. Luke 23, verse 13, starts like this. He says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. So he's calling together some of the Jewish people. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to, to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who was thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demands should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom, from, for whom they asked, and he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now, we know Pilate was guilty for fear of the crowd. And we know that Pilate was in a difficult situation. One, one scholar said it this way. He said, although we cannot exonerate Pilate, I mean, he's not innocent by no means. We can certainly acknowledge that he was on the horns of a difficult dilemma and it was the Jewish leaders who impaled him there. You know, they put Pilate in this position and Pilate went along with the plan to lift up Christ on a cross and kill him. In Matthew 27, 17 through 18, we read, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. And so what was the motivation for these religious leaders? Envy. They envied Jesus. Even Pilate could see it. Now, what is envy? Well, it's on the... Kind of flip side of the coin of vanity. Nobody is ever envious of someone else unless they are first proud of themselves. And we know the religious leaders of the day, many of them anyway, uh, were very proud of their race, their nationality, their religious and their moral heritage and their performance. And what Jesus was doing, which caused such a... um, such trouble is that he was interfering with that, right? I mean, Jesus came and he was 
kind of going against the grain with some of their teaching and, and customs. And they didn't like that. People were beginning to follow Jesus. And so Jesus is rocking the boat. He's interfering with the status quo. And although, you know, you and I, we're not a part of the Sanhedrin, you know, the, the ruling body of uh, first century Judaism. We're not high priests. But yet we have a little bit of, you know, religious leaders. You know, there's a little bit of that in all of us, right? Where we don't like Jesus interfering. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes it. He says, No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a sort of transcendental interferer. If its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depths of one's soul, which one could surround with a bobbed wire fence and guard with a notice that said, no admittance. And that was what I wanted. Lewis says, I wanted some area, however small, of which I could say to other beings, this is my business, mine only. You see what Lewis is saying? He said, I recognize in Christianity that there was this one transcendental interferer, Jesus, that if I were to follow him, he will interfere with every area of my life. And Lewis said, that bothered me at first. I want some area that, are, that is off limits. And I wonder, I wonder if that's true of you. Is there an area, however small, he says, that you kind of have a fence, you know, just erected around it with some barbed wire with a sign, no trespassing. My business you know, Jesus, stay out of this. You can have all these other things, but you cannot get involved in this area. See, that's the religious leaders. They did not want Jesus to be as involved as he desired to be as the one who would be called the Messiah, the Son of God. And so they delivered him up. And what we see is we have a, we have a little bit of those religious leaders in all of us, a little bit of high priests, you know, in our system. You know, I asked my kids, <clears throat> who killed Jesus? One of them said, the Romans. And they were right. Another one said, the one who kissed him. My youngest said that. Lily. She said, the one who kissed him. I said, you're right. He was involved. That's a layer. He was in that group that, that delivered him up. Judas is a, is a layer in the crime. And in many places in scriptures, we, we read about Judas's role in the death of Christ. One of them is found in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 24. And this is what we read. And this is a, a passage we use when we talk about the Lord's Supper, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Paul says it this way. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Did you catch it? He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, well, who betrayed Him? Judas. Acts 1, 15 and 16. We read, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. I mean, Judas was a key instrument in the killing of Jesus. Now, what was his motivation? Pilate, fear of the crowd, the Jews, envy, the Roman soldiers, indifference, just kind of going through the motions. What about Judas? Well, I'm not sure all of his motivation, what it entailed, but I do know this. At least part of it was greed. And we see it in the scripture. In John 12, you remember when Mary comes and pours that expensive perfume over Jesus' feet? And do you remember how Judas responds to that as he sees that? This is what he says in John 12, 5 and 6. He says, you know, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Sounds pretty good. But then John gives us a little commentary. John knows him. And this is what he says. John says, he didn't say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Which makes sense now. They say, oh, so when G- Judas saw an opportunity to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he took it. And so Judas betrayed Jesus. Now, we all have a little bit of Judas in us. Right? We all have a little bit of Judas. Whenever we seek to... Whenever we, we try to use money to accomplish what only Jesus can accomplish for us. Whenever we seek to use money for that, we're betraying Christ. And that's what Judas did. In other words, whenever we look to money for satisfaction, or look to money for our identity, or look to money for our security, we betray Christ. Because Christ wants to be that for you. He wants to be your identity. Your identity is linked to Him, who He is. Right? You are a child of God in Him. That's, your, that's who you are. He's your satisfaction. He supplies all your needs and what you need to accomplish all that God has for you to accomplish. Right? And so whenever we look to something else, specifically money in this, in this instance, to accomplish what only God can accomplish for us in Christ, we walk in the shoes of Judas. So there's a little bit of Judas in us. Another layer in the death of Christ. And this is what my third child said. One of them said the Romans. One of them said the one who kissed him. And the other one said simply our sin. I said, you're right. That's, that's definitely a layer. That's part of it. And, it, you know, I was thinking about this. And I was thinking, you know, you could say, I guess, uh, our sin killed Jesus. And that may be true. But at the same time, we don't want to confuse the idea in that somehow Jesus went to the cross kicking and screaming and our sin somehow made Him do it. 
Because that's not the picture that we get from the New Testament. You know, Jesus was not a martyr. Or he was not just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But what we'll read is, Jesus actually came to die. I mean, he went to the cross, surely with all these other elements in play, but he did so deliberately and voluntarily. And I believe he did that to fulfill uh, what Isaiah taught in Isaiah 53, 12, when he says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And then over in John 10, Jesus says this. Before he dies, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. That's, that's key. No one takes it from me, he says. He's laying it down on his own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Then over in Galatians 2.20, this is a passage we quote often uh, from the Apostle Paul. Many of you have heard this before. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The well-known uh, Anglican pastor and theologian John Stott said it this way. He said, who delivered Jesus up to die? Who delivered him up to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. And this is an interesting um, unfolding of, event, of events here in the death of Christ. Because on the one side of the coin, you have Pilate, you have the Romans, you have the Jews, you have uh, the crowd, you have Judas. Then on the other side, you have the father handing over his son and the son laying down his life. And they're, and they're both two sides of the same event. <clears throat> You know, it's like uh, back in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis when Joseph was betrayed by his brothers you know, and sold into slavery. And God used Joseph through a chain of events to, to, to be in power in Egypt. And through Joseph, uh, God was able to preserve the lives of many, even his own brothers who sold him into slavery as well as the Egyptians. And when his brothers found out that Joseph is the one they sold into slavery, this guy over Egypt... Obviously, they were shocked, but Joseph said this to him. He says, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, yes, you were evil in doing what you did. What you did was wrong. Yet even in the midst of it, God was accomplishing something that you were unaware of. And it's the same thing here, but to a greater degree. You have Pilate. You have Herod. You have the high priest. You have the all these people but yet you also have Jesus laying down His life and God accomplishing redemption in the midst of that single event. Listen to how the Bible speaks of it. Uh, in Romans, I mean not Romans, in uh, Acts 4, 27, this is what Peter says in his sermon. He says, For truly in this city 
They, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And he's talking to God the Father here. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, were they responsible? Absolutely. And they took action, and yet at the same time, God is accomplishing His work of, of redemption. In Acts 2.23, we read, again, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up, he's talking about His crucifixion, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this wasn't a surprise. This was planned from the beginning. Jesus is laying down His life for the sheep. He knew that going into it. So, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter has no problem saying, you know what? Yeah, all you guys did this, and you were wrong for doing it, and yet God is still, in the midst of that, accomplished His plan of redemption in the death of Christ. And so you have all these layers here, all these layers to the death of Jesus. Now, so what? (laughs) Pilate, the high priest, the crowd, sin... You know, so what? What does that have to do with you now, 2,000 years later? What, what does that have to do with me? Well, one, one writer said it this way. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to repentance. If Jesus' death is going to be beneficial to you and to me, then we must not only acknowledge that it happened, but it happened due to your sin and to mine. Listen to how the, uh, the Scottish churchman and poet Horatius Boner wrote about it. He said this. He said it this way. More eloquently than I could ever say it. That's why I'm quoting him. So listen to how he put it. "'Twas I that shed that sacred blood, I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God, I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, Mocking the sufferer's groan, yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. And what he's saying is, I recognize that I had a part to play in that, in the death of Christ. I share in the killing of Christ. Which is key because until you admit that, that you have sin, you have a sin issue, and that sin is what Christ died for, until you can admit that, you cannot share in the salvation grace that He gives you through the cross. Right? I mean, you have to acknowledge that my sin was paid for on the cross. And once that is acknowledged, you can partake of 
the saving grace of God through Christ. In other words, once you realize we have a share in the death of Christ, then you can see that the death of Christ has something to share with you. And Paul said it this way in Ephesians. As he's praising God, he says, In Him, meaning in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Yes, He was killed. Yes, there were many layers. But ultimately, what we see is God was accomplishing His work of redemption through the death of Christ. Canon Peter Green said it this way, Only the man who is prepared to own his own share in the guilt of the cross may, may claim his share in its grace. And so who killed Jesus? And my kids are right. I like to brag on them. All three of them were right. The Romans, the one who kissed them, and our sin. But the benefit to us today is that if we admit our share in the death of Christ, then we can partake of the grace of God that gives us eternal life in Him. So even though there's a little bit of Pilate, a little bit of Judas, a little bit of the high priest, a little bit of all those things, my encouragement to you this morning, as you consider the death of Christ, and you ask the question, who killed Jesus? Perhaps, like uh, Mr. Bonner said, you recognize your own voice in the crowd. You shared in the death of Christ. And by admitting that, now you're in a position to share in the grace and in the eternal life that Christ gives you. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for that truth. It is a, it is a hard truth in the sense that we have to admit, admit guilt, admit that uh, we were involved in the death of your son. And yet at the same time, you tell us this was your plan. This is how you are accomplishing our forgiveness. Uh, this is how you're accomplishing our salvation. That we can actually now come to you in prayer like we are right now. Because of the death of Christ. Because of the cross. And we're so thankful for that. Lord, help us to see not only our own sin and our need to admit that. But also help us to see how great your grace is. And that through the cross you forgive all sin for the one who's willing to admit it and run to Christ for that forgiveness and eternal life. Lord, thank you for what you accomplished. Lord, continue to teach us as we move forward uh, today and in the weeks to come as we consider what you've done through your son. Lord, teach us and help us to appreciate it more and more that we may represent you well to those around us. And that is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.